The best way to listen to Radio Captain U is on the way to practice. You can subscribe for free through the podcast app on your iPhone or Android and then enjoy more than 40 episodes. We'd like to thank our partners, including U.S. Lacrosse and the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, for their leadership in communicating sports science and technology. There's a lot more to being a successful athlete than learning technique and tactics. On Radio Captain U, we introduce you to the leaders of the sports revolution. Welcome to Radio Captain U. I'm Avi Stopper. If you haven't listened already to our last episode with best-selling author Stephen Kotler on the topic of flow, you've got to check it out. On this episode, we're going to dive deeper into the concept of flow. Last time, we talked a little bit more about what flow is, and this go-around, we're going to talk about how you actually get into a flow state, what it feels like, and what the cycle of flow really is like. Let's jump into the interview now. All right, well, Stephen Kotler, welcome back to Radio Captain You. The last time we had you on the show, we talked a lot about the theory of flow, what flow is. And in this episode, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into the mechanics, how you get into flow, what it feels like, how you avoid getting distracted and what you should do if you do get distracted. And after the fact, how to kind of reflect on what that experience was like. So let's start at the start. Let's talk about techniques for getting into flow. Well, there's two things you need to know to get into flow, and we can kind of take them separately. The first is that there are flow triggers. There are 17 in total, and these are preconditions that lead to more flow. So three of these triggers are environmental. Three of them are psychological, so environmental would be external triggers. Psychological would be internal triggers. There is one creative trigger, and then there are 10 social triggers. And the social triggers are a little different because up till now, we have been talking about individuals getting into flow. There is also a shared collective version of the state known as group flow. And it's familiar to most people. You've taken part in a brainstorming session, sung in a church choir, gone to a rock concert where you've been totally swept away by the rock concert, seen a fourth quarter comeback in football or soccer or baseball. It doesn't, well, baseball doesn't have fourth quarters, but you get my point. You've seen group flow in action. And so group flow has 10 social triggers. The place to start is with the triggers. And the first thing you need to know about all of these triggers is that flow always follows focus, right? It is a always a present tense affair. It's what happens when we can drive attention into the now. So all 17 of these triggers are literally the ways evolution shaped our brain to pay attention to the moment, right? So all, when we talk about flow triggers, all we're actually doing is kind of like peering under the hood at evolutionary biology and using it for our own benefit. Can you give me some examples? There are 17 of them you said. So what are some of your favorite or those that you find most interesting? We don't have time to go through all of them, but let's talk about the three environmental triggers. And the reason I've chosen these is twofold. One, probably remember from the last show, action adventure sport athletes have become some of the best flow hackers on earth. They can reliably reproduce these states better than any other population we know of. 
And one of the reasons is they lean very, very heavily on the environmental triggers. So we'll talk about the environmental triggers. I'll talk about action-adventure sport athletes do. And then, because whenever I mention action-adventure sport athletes, people stop thinking about themselves and start thinking this isn't for them. I'll explain how that would work in the real world. And the others, you can find all the rest of them online for free in a PDF. It's called 17 Flow Triggers. And just search my name in the PDF. But the first of the environmental triggers is pretty obvious if you're talking about action-adventure sports. It's high consequences. And the reason is simple, right? Flow follows focus and consequences catch our attention. Action adventure sport athletes have a great time with this trigger because they perform in high-risk environments, right? There's constant physical danger. Here's the cool thing for everybody else. You don't need physical danger. It's great. It's phenomenal. You do need risk for flow, right? You have to take a risk to catch your brain's attention in that way. It doesn't have to be physical risk. You can substitute emotional risk, creative risk, intellectual risk, social risk. Social risks are fantastic, in fact. And give you just a simple example, the brain can't actually tell the difference between physical danger and social danger. It processes them in the exact same spots, which sounds kind of ridiculous until you realize that 200 years ago, if you got banished by your tribe, right, kicked out, exiled, you screwed up socially, that was capital punishment. You would die. So the brain reacts to social fear same way it reacts to physical fear. So you can swap out those, which means Laird Hamilton or other big wave surfers, they got to paddle into a 50-foot wave at Jaws to pull this trigger. But the shy woman only has to kind of raise her hand and speak up at the difficult business meeting to pull this trigger. Shy guy's got to walk across the bar and talk to the pretty girl, right? It's totally, first of all, individual. So your level of risk is different from my level of risk, and it doesn't have to be physical. It can be emotional, social, intellectual, etc. right? So that's the high consequence trigger. And this tells us something really important, by the way, in business today. Companies that don't have have that fail forward, fail faster kind of motto, that Silicon Valley motto, have a big problem. By not giving employees the space to fail, they're not giving the employees the easy access to flow that comes from taking risks. You need to be able to work in an environment that fosters risk to be able to lean on this trigger for flow. What might risk look like for a high school athlete who's playing in a soccer game or something like that? Well, Sports is pretty straightforward. Risk is interesting, right? Because risk is difficult in team sports and it's tricky because in team sports, you have a job to do, right? Done well, everybody has a job to do. And then risk, for example, in football, football coaches want their players to do exactly the same thing on every play, except when the play breaks down at the end of it and there's five seconds of freelancing and risk taking. Same thing is true in soccer. Risk would be an unexpected shot on goal. That's taking a quick risk, right? It shows up also as a writer. When I'm writing, I always believe that there's a certain level of honesty. I want to feel a little bit uncomfortable with how honest I'm being in my writing. I want that feeling because then I know I'm risking enough to push me towards flow. So a little bit of anxiety can move you in the right direction. What are some of the other triggers that really jump to mind? Two other ones, the two other environmental triggers. The next one is deep embodiment. Deep embodiment is a fancy way of saying I'm paying attention with all of my senses. And that doesn't just include your big five, but it also includes proprioception vestibular awareness. So balance and body position in space. Those are other things you pay attention to. The point is quite simply, when you're paying attention to multiple sensory streams at once, it takes up a lot of your brain. It occupies a lot of RAM in your working memory. It drives your focus into the now. 
Action adventure sport athletes are phenomenal at this because they work in environments where they encounter multiple Gs, zero Gs, and polyaxial rotation. So multiple Gs is weightedness, right? Zero Gs is weightlessness, and polyaxial rotation is rotation around your middle. The reason these things are such big triggers is we're gravity-bound creatures. We're not used to feeling these sensations. When we feel them in our body, grabs hold of our attention. But it doesn't have to be that extreme. In the 90s, Csikszentmihalyi, the University of Chicago psychologist who many believe is the godfather of flow psychology, and a University of Utah researcher went looking for the highest flow environments they could find that weren't an action sport. And what they discovered was Montessori education, which is often called embodied education. Why? Because they emphasize learning through doing. Don't just read about the windmill, go out and build one. Right? You go out and build the windmill while you're learning about the windmill. You're engaging multiple senses at once and it catches and holds your attention and drives it into the now. And the final one of these environmental triggers is what is known as a rich environment. A rich environment is a fancy way of saying lots of novelty, complexity, and unpredictability in the environment. All three of those things catch and hold our attention sort of in the same way that wrist does. And we've all actually had experience with this trigger. If you've ever felt awe, right, you look at the Grand Canyon, you look up at the vastness of the night sky with millions of stars in it, and the complexity of geological time or the complexity of looking back in time when you're looking at the sky, you know, catches your brain and overwhelms your brain. And that complexity trigger, what is actually happening is you're overwhelming the conscious mind. You're saying this is too much information for you to process and it's kicking processing over to the subconscious and we get sucked into the moment, right? Awe is the front end of the flow state. It's a little taste of that time dilation, the slowing of time that happens in a flow state and that feeling of getting lost in the moment of total absorption. So you've had experience playing with this trigger. It shows up all over the place in action sports because they're performing in living environments. No two waves are the same. The Alaskan snowpack morphs on a moment-to-moment basis. So if you're in those kinds of environments, in these living environments, they change all the time. They're very, very, very complex. They're very novel. Yeah, what's so interesting about this to me is that it seems like maybe it has felt like in the past that the idea of being in the zone or being in a state of flow is really about just kind of going with it, being in the moment. But it almost sounds like what you're describing is stepping back a little bit to acknowledge and absorb what's really going on, having kind of like a moment of presence or focus where you step back from everything that you're doing and acknowledge that. I actually think you've got it backwards, but you hit on something that is super fundamental and most people miss, and it's easiest to explain kind of via action sports, but one of the easiest ways, do you ski, snowboard? More longboard, skateboard. Okay, so you longboard, skateboard. Great, perfect. In my experience, when I go out skiing or mountain bike riding or riding my skateboard, if I'm going out and I'm trying for flow, right, I'm trying to get that flowy pace going, whatever, it never works. I actually can't do it and it makes me hyper-conscious of what I'm doing and I find that I'm trying to go too slow and things like that. For me to generate flow, I have to attack what I'm doing. I have to be incredibly aggressive. I have to up the risk. I have to skate down a hill I've never skated before in a neighborhood I've never been in, for example, to up the novelty, complexity, and unpredictability a little bit. It comes from diving into the now, not pausing and reflecting. When awe is kind of an example of that happening automatically, right? You don't intend to have reality to pause when you gaze up at the night sky. It just happens because the vastness of the sky always overwhelms us, right? There's so much more to see than you expected when you first looked up. 
So just incidentally, I have to throw out there that I know you're in New Mexico. If you have the opportunity ever to skate the Indian school ditch in Albuquerque, it's off the charts and maybe could put you into that state. So funny that you say that. You're like the third person who's said that to me in the past four months. I've just started hearing about it. The YouTube videos and images on an image search are pretty awesome. Anyhow, so when we were talking initially, you had these 17, of course, triggers in four categories. I'd love to just hear real briefly about some of the social triggers, just to get a sense of what that entails. Well, the social triggers... Some of them are very, very familiar. They're kind of crossovers from the other triggers. For example, you want high consequences at an individual level, right? At a social level, you want shared consequences. So collective consequences, which is another way of saying in a team, everybody's got some skin in the game, right? So everybody, everybody's taking risks. Some of them are very different. You need close listening is very, very important. But let me back up for a second and let me tell you where all this came from because the story behind this is a little cool. The guy who figured all this out is Keith Sawyer, who's a neuropsychologist at the University of Washington in St. Louis. And he did it by videotaping Second City. So the improv comedy troupe, he videotaped them for almost 15 years. And it was kind of moment by moment frame analysis. And what he was looking for, like his, oh, this is my sign of flow, is moments when like the improv jumped to a whole nother level, right? Where there was a conscious shift and you could literally see, okay, they hit their groove. He did the same thing with improv jazz musicians. And then he did this microscopic frame-by-frame analysis watching people and watching everything before they kicked into group flow. And that's where this came from. So it's really interesting that way. One of the things Keith found was close listening. All members of the group have to employ the skill. And what close listening does, again, another way of driving attention into the now, it means that when you and I are speaking, I am listening to you and only listening to you. I am not thinking about that thing you said last a second ago that might or might not have been sarcastic or I'm not thinking about that witty thing I'm going to say next. I'm totally focused on your words, right? I'm paying attention in the now. Another one is also actually the first rule of improv. The first rule of improv is always say yes. And the reason is if you and I are doing a skit and I say, hey, there's a blue elephant in the bathroom, and you say, no, there isn't. Just shut up. The skit goes nowhere, right? It just dies. It's got no energy. But if you say, oh, yeah, I hope he's not using up all your hairspray, it goes somewhere, right? It's additive. It moves forward. Now, this is what's interesting about always say yes is this doesn't mean don't criticize. And this research comes out of brainstorming sessions. For years, the idea in a brainstorming session was everybody in the room, no bad idea. It's giant free for all love fest. Turns out that doesn't produce the best results because it doesn't produce the most group flow. You need a little more skin in the game. You need risk. And there's no risk in that situation. What we now know is you want to kind of criticize forward. If somebody says something and you hate almost all of it, the always say yes and response is, okay, so most of what you said doesn't make any sense. But in the middle of it, you brought up this thing that was really cool. That's always saying yes. It's finding a way to be additive, to move the ideas forward, keep the energy moving forward without following along blindly. There are a lot of others, but those are a quick look at them. Again, as I said in the beginning, there is nothing incredibly fancy going on here. People are often disappointed that these flow triggers aren't sexy in a sense, right? But these are the things that evolution trained us to pay attention to. And so that's what we're utilizing here. The other thing, besides all these flow triggers, and it's worth getting to this, the other thing that you have to know to hack flow is that flow is a cycle. It's not a binary. And people make this mistake all the time. So the old thinking is, hey, I'm either in the zone or I'm out of the zone. It's a light switch. It's on or off. Turns out that's not the case at all. 
turns out we now know that flow is a four-part cycle. And a number of those parts don't feel flowy at all. And you have to go all the way through the flow cycle to get into one flow state and to restart the next one. So people, common question, is it possible to live in a flow state? No, it's not. You can't do it. It's not always on. There's different neurobiology underneath different stages of the flow state, and one step follows the next, follows the next, and you have to move through the whole cycle before you can start over again. So understanding the flow cycle is critical to flow hacking because it gives you a map. It lets you know where you are and thus which of the triggers to apply and when to apply them and all that other stuff. So it gives you a map of the territory. The triggers kind of give you a way to kind of muck around. They're the microscopic interventions. The understanding the flow cycle is the macroscopic intervention. Can you describe those four steps in the flow cycle? Yeah. So the first step is known as struggle. It doesn't feel like flow. It actually feels like the exact opposite. Struggle is a loading phase. This is skill acquisition. This is, I am training myself to do something. If I'm a baseball player, this is learning to swing the bat at the ball, right? It's skill acquisition. It's not pleasant. If I'm a writer planning a new book, this means I'm outlining chapters and I've got vector diagrams taped all over my office of possible structure maps and I've got doing interviews and reading books. And the point in struggle is to overload the brain with information, to get yourself up to the point of your brain feels like it's about to explode and then to stop. And it takes some grit to thrive and struggle, right? It is very unpleasant and the funniest thing in the world, but in the Flow Genome Project, we find that most of the work we end up doing is, by the way, is training people how to navigate through struggle, first of all. And more importantly, with the folks in it, we're constantly reminding each other you always forget when you're in struggle, you forget what's going on, that it's a cycle, that this is part of the process because it just feels terrible. So after struggle, there is a release phase. You want to take your mind off the problem. And this is very specific. There are specific ways to do this. What you want to do sort of is play with that deep embodiment trigger a little bit. You want to engage your body or in your brain in very specific ways. You want to take your mind off what you've been doing. So if you have been studying algebra all day or swinging a bat at a ball all day or whatever, go for a walk. Go build model airplanes. Work in the garden. You want to engage part of your brain, but you don't want to exhaust your brain. So don't really rigorous physical exercise is usually too much. And the only thing you don't want to do is watch television because it changes your brain waves in such a way that it blocks the release phase. What is going on in release? So flow is what happens, right, when your conscious mind turns over processing to the subconscious, right? Conscious mind is slow. It has very limited storage capacities and it is very energy inefficient. It uses a lot of energy. Subconscious is extremely fast, like 5,000 times faster than the conscious mind. It's extremely energy efficient and it has essentially an unlimited RAM space, unlimited storage. So to pass it over to the conscious mind, you have to basically take your mind off the problem. You've got to let go of it so your conscious mind can take over. This is, by the way, why people have such great ideas in the shower. They will be working on a problem all day long. Then they come home from work and take a shower, and the act of scrubbing their bodies with soap is distracting enough. It engages that deep embodiment trigger. It allows the brain to kick the problem over from the conscious to the subconscious so the subconscious can solve it. That's what happens. Under the hood, there's stress hormones that are rising during the struggle stage. In release, the body releases nitric oxide. It's a global gases signaling molecule. It flushes the stress hormones out and in their place triggers the release of dopamine, endorphins, and anandamide, so it kicks you into the third stage, which is the flow state itself, right? Mm -hmm. You're in the flow state, you feel like Superman, it's amazing, it's wonderful, and they last various times, usually about an hour, hour and a half, and then on the back side of that, 
is recovery. And recovery is really fundamentally important. Most people don't understand what's going on here. And this is where most people get stuck. I was going to say, actually, just real quickly, it seems like there's between actual flow and recovery, is there some sort of disruption usually that leads to that? I'm thinking about, you know, in a game, if you're watching a soccer game, for example, sometimes you'll see someone gets a red card or it's halftime or there's a bad foul and all of a sudden just the whole dynamic of the game changes. Well, you can get kicked out of flow, right? You can get interrupted from flow. Focus gets kicked out of the present, right? That's fairly easy to do. Studies done on coders, software coders in flow, found that on average, it takes about 15 minutes to get back into flow once you've been kicked out, if you can get back at all. I think there are ways to get back in faster and things along those lines. And there's ways not to get distracted, but you can get kicked out that way. Or the flow state will normally come to its end, right? It's got a long tail. At the end of a flow state, there's this kind of afterglow feeling that's actually serotonin that comes on at the back end of a flow state. And it can linger for a while, right? And the effect that afterglow can last a day couple days after the flow state itself. And it carries with it, Teresa Mobley at Harvard discovered that the heightened creativity you get in flow extends a couple days after the flow state as well. So there is like this lingering afterglow that, again, a couple hours to a couple of days, but after that comes this deep crash, which is the recovery phase. And it's because the neurochemicals that produce the state of flow are expensive to produce, and you exhaust your supply of them in flow. So it takes a while for the brain to kind of get the right nutrition and minerals and vitamins, et cetera, et cetera, to rebuild those neurochemicals. And so it takes a while to come back till normal. That's the recovery phase. Most people get very depressed. They went from feeling like Superman to feeling very, very average and mortal and frail. Actually, you feel worse than normal because you, all the feel good neurochemicals your brain are gone. They're used up. So it can be really a, a deep low and you need to learn to kind of grit your teeth and not pay too much attention to it for a number of reasons. This is the one flow hacking thing that I think makes the most difference. I always say you got to apply the hangover rule to the recovery phase. Hangover rule is, of course, familiar to anybody who's been drunk more than three times, hungover more than three times. You realize that when you're hungover, your brain says all kinds of bad things to you. You have all kinds of negative thoughts. And eventually, usually after three or four times, you learn to ignore them. You say, all right, that's a really dark thought, and I'm going to deal with that tomorrow when I feel better. But today, I'm just going to kind of survive this. That's the hangover rule. It applies here, too, and it applies for two key reasons for flow hacking. The first is there's accelerated learning in flow. But if you start to produce anxiety, meaning I used to feel like Superman and now I feel very mortal, this isn't good, you're going to start producing cortisol. little bit is okay. Too much, you will actually block learning. It blocks long-term potentiation, which means you will get heightened performance in flow, but you won't get the long-term heightened learning effects that come with the state. The other thing is to start the state over, right, to move into your next flow state, you have to go from recovery right into struggle. Recovery is very emotionally difficult, and then you have to get up for the serious fight of struggle. It is difficult to do, and that's one of the things that I think blocks a lot of people. Interestingly, one of the things that actually happened in action and adventure sports, one of the reasons they got so good at hacking flow is almost all of these sports are weather dependent. Big storm blows in, everybody goes surfing or everybody goes skiing or snowboarding, goes crazy. A couple days later, it's gone and everybody takes a couple days and recovers. It's got built-in recovery periods. That doesn't usually happen in the real world, right? In the real world, you go out, you get into a bunch of flow states, you kick a bunch of ass, 
And the reward is immediately kind of more responsibility, more work, less recovery, and you're actually blocking your next flow state, which is what you would need to get into to meet those exalted expectations. All right. So we've got to wrap things up here, Stephen, but I've got to ask you, so much of this seems to be wrapped up in brain chemistry. How is this actually being studied? I mean, are there people doing these kinds of activities? Like is Laird Hamilton going out for a surfing session with a bunch of diodes on his head or something like that? How are they actually identifying what's going on in the brain? When it comes to neurochemistry, we are not at that level of monitoring, right? Our technology has just gotten to the point that we can start measuring kind of ion channel neurochemical release in the brain, but there's no ethical way to do that research on on humans or on animals. What we have done is, you know, there's great neuroelectricity technology. So EEG technology has gotten to the point that we can now filter out the noise of motion, and we are just there, literally. So my organization, the Flow Genome Project, is going to be at Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Biohacker Conference at the end of next week. And we are bringing our Flow Dojo toys, our extreme playground equipment, and working with a couple of different companies that have these really advanced EEGs. And we can kind of simulate action sports in a much safer environment and work with your brainwaves at the same time. So that technology has arrived, and that that gives you an example of what's going on. And people have been doing this over the years. I mean, the studies on athletes, they've studied athletes in pretty much every environment you can possibly imagine for 30, 40 years at this point for various things flow. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Such a fascinating topic. Stephen Collar, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope that Radio Captain U helps you be more successful on the field. Radio Captain U is a production of Captain U, the network that helps high school athletes, youth coaches, tournament directors, and college coaches be more successful. For more information, visit www.captainu.com. The opinions expressed on the show do not represent the opinions or recommendations of Captain U or its partners.